Oh, good morning, church. Oh, that was a hearty good morning. Wonderful. Thank you. We've been in a sermon series called Prophetic Vision, uh, seeing the world through God's eyes. And we're at the last Sunday, we're, we're looking at the prophet Jeremiah. Um, we're in a season as a church discerning God's vision for the future. And we need to be aligned with God's vision for his kingdom and for our world. Um, and the passage that we're coming to this morning in Isaiah is extremely important. It's incredibly significant because Jesus quotes this passage at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, this is what Jesus himself envisioned for what his kingdom was going to bring about. The way the gospel writer Luke tells it, it says that when he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery to the sight of the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And, then he, and he read that scripture and then he said to them, today this, has been, this reading is, is fulfilled in your hearing. Why did Jesus say that this was fulfilled now? What vision was he trying to get across that this was happening right in the midst of the world? I think this passage, this vision ought to be central to our vision of Jesus' kingdom and the work we're called to do as a church. And what Jesus was doing is he was casting the vision of, of the kingdom as an age of jubilee. The, the language here in Isaiah is, the, is about the year of jubilee. Now, unfortunately, in, in many churches, the, this vision of jubilee has been neglected. So we need to take some time to remember or maybe learn for the first time this morning what the year of Jubilee was. So is it okay if, if again, we do some Bible study this morning? We're going to go into a, a lot of different scriptures. So what was the year of Jubilee? Well, simply, it was the seventh sabbatical year for the people of God. So we have to know what a sabbatical year was. So this is out of Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in their yield. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. So every seventh year, the people of God, they rested, they did not, they did not uh, work their fields, and so this happened every seven years. Now, the year of Jubilee was a seventh sabbatical year. So this is where it gets to the, the year of Jubilee legislation. It says, you shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout your land, and you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. The jubilee was a big celebration, a nationwide celebration of liberty and return. Slaves were set free. Families that were maybe separated by this indentured servitude, they were reunited. Can you imagine the joy of being reunited with your, your wife or your sons or daughters? The land was returned to the original family who, who owned it, and debts were canceled. 
And this was an amazing thing. This, and this was necessary because people and families over time would become crippled by poverty and oppression. So what could happen is a, a peasant farmer, farmer could say have, maybe they have a bad crop one year and they, they have a, a lot of debt. They can't, they can't pay their bills. So what they would do is they would sell some of their land, maybe to a, maybe to a brother, to a fellow Israelite, so that they could make ends meet. Uh, but now they have less land to work with, right? So maybe they don't make as much money the next year. So then they, they have even more debts. So they could end up selling all of their land to maybe a brother or a fellow Israelite. Uh, but then it might, it might get worse and worse. Now they're, now they're in, indentured servitude. Now they have less resources. Uh, and so now they, or sorry, they have to sell themselves then because they, they, don't, they don't own their land. So they could sell themselves into slavery as a hired worker for another family, another farmer. So on the... So people's lot would grow worse and worse over time. Now, on the flip side, other people's wealth is increasing and increasing because they're redeeming the other people's land, they're adding to their land, and they're taking on indentured servants who would work for them. So the Jubilee was a God-given, legislated economic restoration of wealth and freedom, ensuring that cycles of poverty and oppression were broken and that the overaccumulation of wealth by smaller numbers of people was nullified. Now, the families, they could become entrapped in poverty for any reason, but the Jubilee was proclaimed for all, no matter how they fell into poverty, no matter what choices they made. The Jubilee was grace-based, not dependent on merit, not dependent on earning it. It was declared by God to restore economic balance, wealth, and dignity to all the people of God. You see, God did this because God gave them the land. He was the true owner of the land. The people had to tend and steward it. And so when, and when God gave them the land, he distributed distribute it uh, re- relatively equally among the tribes and the clans. There was, there was no centralized owning of the land by anyone, but each person had the ability to work, provide for their family, and approve their lot in life. So the Jubilee restored a sense of equality among God's people, Uh, gave them the opportunity and dignity to provide for themselves, and it reminded the people of God that He was the real owner of the land, not them. Now, does anybody remember maybe in PE class or youth group playing dodgeball? You guys guys with me? Give me me some nods or raise a hand. Thank you. Okay. Many of you remember playing dodgeball. And uh, I remember what, what could happen is a few of the more, let's say, dominant athletes, a few of the more physically gifted uh, students, uh, they might kind of pummel the other opponents in the game. And what could happen is, is the, 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 maybe the less gifted students are kind of sitting on the sidelines watching some of the more gifted ones have fun or play or keep the game going. Until, that is, the PE teacher or the youth pastor said those glorious words. Jailbreak! Jailbreak! And everybody came back into the game. Oh, it was great. Was that fair? No. But was it fun? You bet. You see, any good game, a well-managed game, has to allow for healthy competition between players, but it has to be regulated enough that it regulates against domination by a few against the rest. You think even about this in sports, the salary cap. We want to make sure that the the New York Yankees don't keep buying their way and dominating everybody else. That's no fun. So the sports put in regulation. We're going to make sure no one dominates to that degree. But the Jubilee was more than just a jailbreak. The people weren't just released. They were actually sent with a blessing. Because we know this because in Deuteronomy, 
It gives them this instruction when they were to release slaves. It says, when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. So in summary, the Jubilee, it declared freedom for captives, release from bondage, release from debt. It gave people land back, and they were sent off with animals, food, and wine. They were given all they need for a new life, a fresh economic start. Now, if you're an Israelite, one of the most important things about your identity is that you were part of a redeemed people. They knew their history. God had redeemed them out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of that oppressive environment. God delivered them from that, brought them to a new land, and entered into a covenant with them. And this is why that the redeemed people must restore people who have fallen on hard times into poverty, debt, or slavery. Because God had saved them from that very situation themselves. They must do the same for others. Redeemed people must be about restoring people. The biblical scholar Christopher Wright says the exodus is God's model of redemption and the jubilee is God's model of restoration. Let me say that again. The exodus is God's model of redemption. The jubilee is God's model of restoration. And this is, this is his vision of how he's restoring the world. This is Jesus' vision of his kingdom. Jesus' death and resurrection, it's a new exodus for us. It's a new redemption. Jesus has redeemed us. We use that language, right? From sin, Satan, hell, and death, and more by his sheer grace. We remember that Jesus died on Passover, as we'll celebrate at the table in a moment. The festival celebrating the exodus, the glorious freedom of the people of God. And just like God's people who were redeemed, we must be people who practice restoration on the model of the Jubilee. Exodus is the vision of how God saves. Jubilee is the vision of how God restores. So we're, li- we're liberated from sin. We're liberated from death. We're liber- liberated from the powers of, of evil and greed and, and injustice so that we can be people who practice Jubilee. Our work of restoration is motivated by our redemption in Christ. And that's why the year of Jubilee was proclaimed on the Day of Atonement. Did you catch that when we read that earlier? Let me, let me bring it up again. You shall have the trumpet sounded on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, you shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land, and you shall hallow the fiftieth year, and you shall pro- proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. What was the Day of Atonement? It was the day, once in a year, when complete atonement and cleansing for the people's sin was accomplished. It was the one time in a year where the high priest was allowed to go into the most holy place of the temple, offer sacrifices for the people, and then they also confessed the sins upon that goat, and they sent it out into the wilderness, and all their sin was gone. So what was the result of this? This day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. Isn't that amazing? You see, well, in in Jewish teaching and understanding, sin came to be viewed as a great debt that we owed the Creator God. If we fail to perform our duty to God, if we fail to keep all of His commandments, then we built up this great spiritual debt towards God. 
And so when Jesus taught his disciples to pray in, in Luke, he uses that term, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. It's a debt against God. So in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement was God's cancellation of all spiritual debt. All the debt that you owed God, it was gone. All sin was cleansed and canceled. It would be like you've been forgiven $10 trillion. And then, after all of that, it was at that moment the year of Jubilee was proclaimed. Why then? Because there's a connection between forgiveness and generosity. There ought to be a connection between extravagant forgiveness and extravagant generosity. There's a connection between God erasing our spiritual debt and us erasing other people's literal debt. There's a connection between receiving this amazing grace and graciously giving others what they need. So the Old Testament saints, they experienced the Day of Atonement, and then they went to go out to forgive actual debts, to give land back, to release servants, and to send them out with food, wine, and blessing. And you have to ask, who paid for all that? Who paid for the year of Jubilee? It was the wealthier Israelites. Those who had made more, those who had done better, those who had fared better in their harvest, they forgave the debt that was owed to them. They gave back land that they had acquired through their own means. They released people that they had hired or indentured servants. They, lo and they lost a lot of capital and a lot of wealth that year. And on top, top of that, in a sabbatical year, you weren't allowed to farm more. You had to rest the land. You had to rest your workers. You, were, you weren't allowed to even make more money in this year. And you had to trust God. God said he would bless the sixth harvest so that there would be food enough for the next three years. You had to trust him that he would provide. So if, if you had not experienced such radical grace and you had gotten very wealthy, I can imagine that you wouldn't be very excited about the year of Jubilee. You wouldn't be very excited about this. You're going to lose a lot, a lot of wealth. And I would su suggest to you that what has, was supposed to happen in the Old Testament is raised to a higher key in the New Testament. As nice as the atonement was in the Old Testament, isn't the atonement in the New Testament by far greater, right? Because on the cross, our atonement was made forever, Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified the atonement you needed, the sin that separated you from God has been forever taken care of. And not only that, all the debt you owe to God, all the failure you've had to obey His commandments, that's been nailed to the cross. Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Oh friend, you need to understand the magnitude of the debt that you've been forgiven. If, if the atonement of the, of the New Testament is that much greater than the old, how much greater should the jubilee be that is proclaimed throughout the land? How much greater should the generosity be if the atonement's that, that much greater? You know, Jesus tells the story of a, of a king who wished to settle accounts with his ser servants. 
And he brings one of them in, that, and, and it's hyperbolic. He owes them 10,000 talents. You know, a, a talent was 20 years worth of wages. This, this is that tens of trillions of dollars. And the king orders the servant to be sold, him and his family, and all that he has. But the servant falls on his knees, and he begs the king, just have mercy, and I'll, I'll, I'll repay it, which is ridiculous. He could never repay that debt. But it says the king has mercy on him, forgives him his debt, and sets him free. But then... The servant goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him like a hundred bucks. And he demands that this servant would repay him. And, uh, and he doesn't forgive him. He doesn't forgive him his debt and he puts him in jail over it. But other servants find out about it and they go tell the king. And the king punishes that servant for his lack of mercy. Now, this parable, it's about forgiveness, but it's also about appreciating the unbelievable debt that we have been forgiven in Christ. All our debt was paid by him. We ought to be walking around like people who were forgiven a billion, a billion dollars or more. I mean, what worth can you put on your eternal life? What worth can you put on that? It's worth more than anything. And if, and if you think about his mercies are new every morning. It's like you woke up today, gosh, the Lord just forgave another billion dollars on your account. You wake up again, he's forgiven you more. He's forgiven you more. He's canceled more debt. He cancels more debt for you every morning. If you've been forgiven that much, how can we not extravagantly, extravagantly be generous? If this is Jesus' vision, I think it begins to make sense of all the things that he said and taught, does it not? He provides this wonderful atonement and he begins the age of jubilee and he tells his disciples, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. You can't serve God and money. Don't worry about what you'll eat, drink, or wear, but seek first God's kingdom and his justice, and these will be added to you. He tells them to sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, treasure in heaven that will never fail. And it's clear, I think, that the early church caught this vision of the Jubilee. Look what we see them doing. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Acts 4, all the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses, they sold them, they brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And you see, they caught the vision of the Jubilee, God's vision. The, the Apostle Paul, he also had this vision. He spent a large portion of his ministry. He didn't, you know, Paul didn't just write letters, you know. <laughs> he went around. One of the, the major aspects of his ministry is he went around collecting from the Gentile churches for the poor churches in Jerusalem who were going under a famine. And he was raising money for them. And he says this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Man, that's a radical goal if we take the Bible seriously, that God's people would have equality among them. The goal is equality? Really? 
The one who gathered too much did not have too much. The, gather, the one who gathered too little did not have too little. At least a semblance of economic balance. That's jubilee. Resources freely shared because of the sheer grace of God. Those who have been blessed with more than they need, they give to and lift up freely those who have less. I mean, doesn't it now make sense to you that Jesus said his kingdom would be good news to the poor? This is the kingdom he's bringing about. On that day in the synagogue at Nazareth, he said he was proclaiming a year of jubilee. His kingdom, his people would go about restoring shalom, restoring justice, releasing captives, forgiving debts, lifting up the poor into better economic situations where they can live under their own vine and their own fig tree. This is good news to the poor of the world, but it's also good news to the rich. It's good news to the rich. I had a friend one time who lent uh, $10,000 to another friend for college, an interest-free loan. Now, my friend's parents, they, they didn't have any money, and my friend really didn't, didn't have any money either. At the end of the four years, uh, several of us were out for lunch and anticipating the, the repayment of this debt. Uh, we were celebrating their graduation, and people were exchanging gifts and notes, and my friend received a note from their benefactor, and they opened up the note, and it says, the loan is completely forgiven. You don't have to pay us back a single dollar. It's all gone. The tears. The tears coming down. All of our faces. Their face, our friend's face, mine. We were experiencing in a moment jubilee breaking in. The kingdom of God breaking in. The love and generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's good news to the rich. I, I, I know it's not Christmas time, but I always think of Scrooge <laughs> who, hang, who hung on to all that money, but then he realized life was about living in the Jubilee. I'm going to start giving it away. I'm going to start giving it away. I'm going to start lifting up those who are poor, lifting up those who are in dire economic circumstances. And you know what he found? He found the joy of the Lord. It's good news to all of us. And wouldn't it be amazing if the church of Jesus Christ across the world was completely debt-free? And by that I mean, what if every person who considered themselves a Christian worldwide was debt-free, was lifted up out of poverty, was lifted up out of oppression, and they, they would have what they needed for a good economic life? What if Christians so pooled their resources together that every congrega congregation had no debt on their budget? What if every person in our church was liberated from whatever is holding them back economically? I mean, wouldn't the world rejoice wouldn't the world be astonished that, wow, money is not their God? That's what motivates us. What's motivating them? I can't believe they would live in such a way. It would astound the world if we lived in this vision of the Jubilee. And my prayer is that God will let this vision become more and more a part of our lives, that we see it impact how we live both as individuals but also as a church. Would you pray that with me? I'm going to invite Dan Dobler up and he's going to lead us in prayer this morning.